Hey everyone, welcome to this first talk of three on St. John of the Cross's text, The Ascent of Mount Carmel. Now, unlike my talks on St. Teresa of Avila's The Interior Castle, I won't be going uh, too in-depth into either the biography of St. John of the Cross himself or the, the the writing, the process of writing the book itself. I will only give a minimal amount of that so that we can get straight into the text. So, the ascent of Mount Carmel, or Sabida del Monte Carmelo, uh, is a 16th century treatise by St. John of the Cross, um, who is known as the mystical doctor of the church. Uh, it's a systematic treatment of the ascetic or the ascetical life uh, in pursuit, much like the work of St. Teresa of Avila, and really the, the pursuit of uh, Christian mysticism, really, uh, in pursuit of mystical union with Christ, with God, um, giving advice, and also, like St. Teresa of Avila, reporting on his own experience. Um, this work has a connection with another sometimes more well-known work, or at least more well-known name, of uh, from St. John of the Cross, called The Dark Night of the Soul, which after these I will do some talks on, uh, which is to do with... Um, specific elements in a certain sense, the soul undergoing earthly and spiritual privations, but we'll get to these things. Um, so the ascent of Mount Carmel was written between 1578 and 1579 in Granada, um, after St. John of the Cross's escape from prison. Now, the diagram, for those that are watching uh, on YouTube or watching the video, the diagram is is, is an illustrated diagram which, which was given. Um, now, I'm not going to go into the diagram at this point. It doesn't particularly work too well uh, from a talk point of view, as anyone who can see it will know. But if people want to look in that, into that diagram, they are obviously more than welcome to do so. Um, and But it really, this diagram that St. John of the Cross gave us outlines, in relation to the text, the progress to the summit of the metaphorical Mount Carmel, where God is encountered. Uh, the work is divided into, so the, 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 the ascent of Mount Carmel, which I'll be talking about, is divided into three sections or three books, hence why I'll be giving three talks. But they're three talks, maybe not in three parts, because the second book is a, is a, is a fair bit longer, so that may be two parts in that section. Um, and it's set out as a commentary on some poetic standards, stanzas by St. John on the subject um, of the Dark Knight, on the subject of the Ascent, on the subject of this ascetic spiritual journey. Uh, basically, St. John of the Cross is showing us um, how the soul sets about to leave all worldly tides and appetites behind to achieve, as he says, nothing less than transformation in God. So for those that watched uh, and listened to the talks that I gave on St. Teresa of Avila's The Interior Castle, this is, as you can imagine, much the same journey, seen from a different perspective, seen from St. John of the Cross's perspective, with different emphases on different areas, and it's extremely beautiful. Where St. Teresa of Avila is often more didactic, practical, uh, particular, St. John of the Cross is very poetic. Um, and in a, in a certain sense, and it's strange to say this, he's much more vertical. Um, so, Moving into the book, what so St. John of the Cross states that the following stanzas, the following stanzas <laughs> include all the doctrine he intends to discuss in the book in its entirety, not just book one. 
the entirety of the ascent of Mount Carmel uh, is all the doctrine is included in these eight stanzas um, and so or these however you want to call them and I will read them here in full even though actually of all of this uh, of these stanzas in book one of the ascent of Mount Carmel uh, he is only dealing with one of them so he's only dealing with five lines of poetry and ultimately he's actually only really for the bulk of book one dealing with the first line uh, which we will we will see um, and so before embarking upon this whole journey of probably these four or five talks split into three sections so talks on book one this will only be one talk talks on book two and then talks on book three in these talks we're going to be dealing with these stanzas and so even though in this talk we're only going to be dealing with basically the one line in the first stanza i will read them out to you uh, in full one dark night fired with love's urgent longings ah the sheer grace i went out unseen my house being now all stilled in darkness and secure by the secret ladder disguised ah the sheer grace in darkness and concealment my house being now all stilled on that glad night in secret for no one saw me nor did i look at anything with no other light or guide than the one that burned in my heart this guided me more surely than the light of noon to where he was awaiting me, him I knew so well, there in a place where no one appeared. O guiding night, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that has united the lover with his beloved, transforming the beloved in, in her lover. Upon my flowering breast, which I kept holy for him alone, there he lay sleeping and I caressing him, there in a breeze from the fanning cedars, when the breeze blew from the turret as I parted his hair, it wounded my neck with its gentle hand, suspending all my senses. I abandoned and forgot myself, laying my face on my beloved. All things ceased. I went out from myself, leaving my cares, forgotten among the lilies. So much like in many of these mystical texts, one of the first things St. John does in the prologue so we have the prologue, then we have the stanzas, then we have book one, two, three. First thing he does in the prologue is, in the first line, actually, is to tell us that one needs an extremely deep experience to understand the journey of the soul towards the perfect union of God. Um, and a deep experience okay there is no human science which can adequately understand these experiences that he's going to be talking about much in the way same way that saint Teresa of avila emphasized that only certain people who got to these experiences would be able to experience them basically you can't understand these experiences unless you've experienced them which to anyone you know of the modern scientific leaning is just going to you know consider that to be whatever but he is emphasizing he's saying look, these are extremely deep experiences um, and only in suffering them and experiencing them can we know what these experiences are like. And if we are to experience them, then we won't actually be able to come back and describe them. So once again, we're always in that struggle of almost like experience versus language. Okay, The experience isn't the language, the language isn't the experience. So that you're always at a loss of how to explain experience because experience sounds like a tautology, but experience is to be experienced. So 
uh, alongside this, much like St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross doesn't leave himself, he doesn't believe himself, sorry, doesn't believe himself entirely capable of this of this task, you know, uh, much like St. Teresa of Avila, he is praying to the Lord. He's confident that the Lord will help him explain these matters to us. Um, and, you know, God gives many souls the talents and grace needed for uh, for advancing, says St. John, but many are sort of lonely and their methods don't always want to advance or perhaps they haven't got in the right direction. Uh, they don't want to break away from the methods of beginners or they don't want to adapt themselves to uh, to God's will. So in not applying their wills, they, they resist God. And very quickly, St. John is actually, much like St. Teresa of Avila, uh, in, my, in my opinion, is quite severe. He's saying many, you know, quite a few people will have these gifts, but there's many reasons that people won't give themselves fully over to what is ultimately this form of suffering. Um, and once again, we actually see from St. John across the, the, the repetition um, that a of a certain point that much of this form of suffering which we'll see in relation especially to the symbol of darkness and the idea of the soul being dark in within darkness uh, will often be conflated with a material melancholia or a depression okay uh, it will be you know this is what you're undergoing and this as well this hidden wickedness will will and can or might lead people astray um you know, on this journey that St. John is going on about, and this is in the prologue, so he's talking, so we need to emphasize much like, again, like St. Teresa of Avila, we need to emphasize one important fact forthwith, which is that much like the interior castle and the way of perfection, this is also being written for, um, uh, you know, the brothers, for uh, not necessarily for monks, uh, sorry, not necessarily for nuns, but for monks, for, for, for people of a religious life, of a religious vocation who are in a, in a you know, to, 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 to be a bit rough, going that extra step. Priests, religious vocations, monks, etc. These are, these are written for those people who are within those environments. So in a certain way, this, it, these aren't written for laity. These aren't written for the everyday people. But of course, as I said, um, in the, the talks on, um, St. Teresa of Avila as well, now we're in the modern day and these books are available to everyone. Many, many people use them as spiritual guidance in a way. And so taken out of that context, they often become a, a bit stranger and in a certain sense, a bit more dangerous. But in putting that point across, he sort of then goes into this fact that a lot of what people will then be un undergoing and undertaking this, this journey will, in the material world, and especially in the modern world, many of the the emotional or the, 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 the internal struggles and sufferings that people will be going through in undertaking this journey would be understood as a material melancholia or depression. And this for St. John is understood as a hidden wickedness, which would once again lead people astray. Um, people in, people on this journey might find that they don't have as much satisfaction as they used to in God and they feel that actually if they were just to turn back things would be much more simpler they'd go back to how, how their relationship was um, but St. John of the Cross has confidence okay, with people who are to undertaking this journey and really within him himself and with the journey being given to him by God and afforded to him with this confidence in God that the, the whole journey is with divine help, right? There's once again this idea that there's you're never you're never um, afforded more suffering than, than you wouldn't be able to deal with. Um, you know, God's almost always putting you at your limit, and there will be an there will be assistance in recognizing the signs of purif purification uh, and what one is to do and what how you know how one is to be in a way uh, with respect to what what we will eventually call the dark night. Um, 
So St. John, of course, also says that this doctrine on the dark night of the soul, which includes the ascent of the Mount Carmel, so that, that's the whole doctrine, um, might appear somewhat obscure. And, and, and in my opinion, I think he's right in emphasizing this, because actually when you compare these, this work with St. Teresa of Avila's, you realize this is a far more obscure work. And he says that the more we read on and persevere, uh, the, in, a, in a way, the latter parts will explain the former. And then if we were to reread the work, uh, it would once again become even more clear. But once again, it's an experiential text. Um, but he, he, he does say some people will still find difficulty in understanding this work. And it will be, um, if, if they continue to find difficulty in understanding this work, it's not because they're they're uneducated or they just can't understand it. He says it will be due to his deficient knowledge and his awkward style because the doctrine itself is good and necessary. Um, but I always want to emphasize this with these texts that within the context which which both St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross are speaking, they're not addressing everyone. It's it's come to be that in the modern day most definitely and it's fantastic that we have access to these texts. But they're not addressing everyone. They are addressing people of the Holy Order um, and of people who are in observance of, you know, the life and the lifestyle or the, or the religious vocation of Mount Carmel, for friars and nuns who are on that very sincere and severe path up this mountain, that internal path up the mountain. Um, you know, and as I said, these texts have become public domain. They're, they're easily printed. You can go online and, you know, buy the collected works of St. John of the Cross for about $15 or whatever. And so, so they're extremely popular. And they are now the, the very, very common wells of mysticism. And, you know, people dip into them for advice. And I think it's always important to see them within their context, to understand their severity and not to dampen it down, but also not to dramatize it in any sense. And just to just to uh, see the beauty of these texts, especially where St. John of the Cross's poetry is concerned. And so we begin with that first stanza. We begin with that. One dark night... Fired with love's urgent longings, ah, the sheer grace, I went out unseen, my house being now all stilled. And so we begin book one, chapter one, uh, the soul here is singing of its departure from its appetites and imperfections. And its departure from all which is not rightly ordered and spiritually good. Okay. Now, for such a departure of the soul away from... Uh, material appetites, imperfections, things of the world, the world itself in a way, for such a departure to happen at all, the soul must pass through uh, two principal kinds of nights, which we, we consider to be purgation in, re in order to reach uh, the state of perfection, perfection. Um, both of which are, are, are journeys as though by night in darkness. And this is the ultimate theme, really, of these texts, is this idea of what is it for the soul to be uh, in darkness. And that itself would be an amazing meditation. The first purgation con concerns the sensory part of the soul. And the second purgation um, concerns the spiritual part. So two purgations, one of the senses and one of the spiritual part. The second night, the second purgation is dealt with later uh, in its active sense and then much later in its passive sense. But in this first book, as you can imagine, in the sense that this is a journey, we're at the beginning, we're at the bottom of the mountain, if you will. Uh, and the first night, the first purgation is the, lo the, the lot of beginners. Uh, it is their introduction into the state of contemplation. And so we see in this poetry that, that the soul being stilled, uh, my house 
my house being now all stilled, has stilled all the appetites of its sensory part and has gone out and uh, unseen, I went out unseen from the appetites of the flesh. And this took place at night, a time of obscurity for the soul and a fortunate time because otherwise the senses and the intellect would have been able to try draw it back. Okay, so this whole process actually had had to happen in a in a symbolic state where the senses almost couldn't see, couldn't catch up with it, couldn't grasp it. Okay, the soul had to enter into that darkness. We can, you know, you can already begin to see that the soul, in that sense, is taking a step completely into faith because it's moving away from the senses, which you know can pick things up, and I know what that is, I know that's here, I can hear that, I can see that, I can smell that, I can taste that, I can touch that, like this verification, which isn't faith, right? I don't need faith to know that my desk is here and that my computer screen is there, but as you enter into night, into complete night of all the senses, that is faith. And so the first thing to have this purgation of the senses is to move into the night, and to, it has to be the night because otherwise the senses would be able to, to, to catch up with you, right? And it's being placed in this night, um, which itself is the sheer grace of God for St. John of the Cross. The, the soul couldn't have entered into this by itself uh, in much the same way the soul can't empty itself by itself, right? There is always a need of grace. So for, to be able to even enter into this night, we need that grace. We need to be, uh, you know, to, to we, need, we need grace as a given, which is there for us, but it, but it is given. Um, and we need that grace, okay? So, St. John of the Cross begins to take apart these stanzas. First stanza, line by line. Now, I say he takes them apart. Pretty much the rest of this, this talk and book one is on one line. The first line, which we saw, so one dark night, fired with love's urgent longings. Ah, the sheer grace. I went out unseen, my house being now still. The first line, one dark night. So three words is taking up our entire time here, basically. Okay, that's that's the importance. One dark night. So he begins with that. <laughs> and in doing so, we we turn to that. Um, we, 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 begin to, we begin to look at it more closely, okay? Um, what is a night? what is its relation to purgation and what is the, the the symbol of the night's relationship with the journey of a spiritual person this 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 relationship we have with this journey up mount carmel so in depriving oneself of all worldly possessions and all which is all which you know is there materially uh, all, all, all the all the sensuous appetites one enters into a denial of the senses which is like a, a, a is a a, a purgation and a night for the soul. So, uh, the road that we are on is 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 of faith, and is, as such, a dark night. Okay, so a night for the soul. It has no senses. That's the the the, the symbol of the night. It can't sense anything, and the and the night is dark. One dark night. It's dark because there is faith. You're entering into darkness, and you're searching for the light. You're allowing either that, or you're allowing the light to come in. But there is that relationship. Okay, so it's a. Uh, the complete purgation of the senses and of the material and of the worldly and everything that's connected to that in a matter of, in an act of faith. And in relation to this life, thirdly, when we arrive at God, he will be as a dark night to the soul in relation to this world. There's like that complete impasse, right? Once again, once again it's that experiential impasse of like, you can't, you can't really know 
uh, if we were to do the whole below or world and divine, let's say world and divine, some people say below and above, you you need the, that of the above to know the above, etc. Okay, so to reach union with God, which is the ultimate goal of this text uh, and the ultimate goal of the Christian, really, or the mystical the mystical path of the Christian, the soul passes through all three of these dark nights, which we we, we saw there. So the 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 denial of all the senses the act of faith, and then God himself being a dark knight to the soul, the soul has to pass through all three of these. And in actuality for St. John of the Cross, these three separate knights comprise one single knight divided into three parts. Um, so he says that the knight of the senses, the denial of sen- or of the sensory, is that of early evening, when all begins to fade from sight or sense. Faith is the complete darkness. You have to now have faith to step forward. And finally, we have God just before the break of day, right? You're in that complete darkness and all of a sudden glimmers of light. We can think of it in that way, but these are all part of the same night for St. John of the Cross. And in a certain sense, we can actually begin to thank it for, for those that what listen to my other talks on St. Teresa of Avila's The Interior Castle. You can think back to her first three mansions, which also, even though they're separate, actually they're really composed of the same process, which then brings you into that deeper relationship of God. So, um, but as, of course, these knights and these first three words are so important to St. John, he goes into each of them in depth. Once again, the, the expression knight signifies the deprivation of the soul's appetites in all sensory things and in all things, okay? Um, knight is the privation of light and thus denies us all which is visible by means of light. Uh, we then exist in darkness and emptiness and in such a way that the purgation and modification of appetites is a night for the soul. So that the, the soul now exists in such such a state, okay, this state of the night, there's nothing to uh, for it to feed on in relation to the worldly pleasures, okay? St. Teresa of Avila focuses on this for much longer, but for St. John of the Cross, he's very quick. He says that the night is when all, all the material things are purged, the world is purged from the soul. We're now in the state, and now there is nothing for the soul. Easy as that. Now there is nothing for the, the soul to feed on in relation to the worldly pleasures, and it now exists and uh, in a void, in darkness. Now, um, why is it darkness? Question mark. Um, the scholastics would argue that the soul is a clean slate when it is breathed into or infused into us by God. So it's a clean slate, okay? Um, Without the knowledge afforded to it by the senses, it would be entirely ignorant. And thus the soul, okay? Now we need to look at this relationship basically between the soul and the senses and why it's so important that, you know, why why, why is is the soul purging all these material things and the worldly things so important anyway? Scholastics argue that the soul is a clean slate when it's first uh, infused or imbued, put into us by God. Uh, Without the knowledge, which we are afforded to it by the senses, you have the soul, clean slate. Senses are the things that are our means to knowledge. The soul would be ignorant without the senses because they're the things which afford us any knowledge from the world. So the soul is a prisoner who knows nothing, that that knows nothing more than what it is able to behold through the window of a prison. And so we can understand that window as the window of the senses into the external world. 
The soul cannot perceive, cannot act without the senses, and thus to deny them is to deny the soul everything. So you can think of someone sat in a prison, completely dark or whatever, and they have a little window. We can think about that as sight, taste, sound, touch, smell. Okay, that's a little window into the world and everything we know comes through that. Now, one small digression on that, and that is why we have this importance of working while we are here on earth. Because the soul, in the sense that it can't know, learn, or do without the senses, of course, after death, also can't learn, know, or do because it will no longer have the body and the means to actually do anything with the senses. Okay, so you have the time when you have the senses the time when you have your body to work and thus improve your uh, improve your soul or uh, you know and grow that relationship with god that's the time you have but we can begin to think about the peculiar relationship which humans have with the senses and what's been afforded to them by their senses um, and we can we can can actually relate all this this idea of okay well the only way we get knowledge is via the senses what's so bad about that we can begin to think about this in one of the one of the more famous or well-known themes of the Bible and one of the more well-known stories, the idea of the rich man, okay? The rich man who's asked to give up all his riches for Christ. Uh, now, this rich man, um, he may indeed give up all his material, we could even say sensory, riches, okay? All those worldly materials, sensory, sensuous things that, you know, taste, touch, smell, blah, blah, blah. All these things, he he may very well give all these up for Christ, you know. But, big caveat, if after doing so, he still, in his, uh, in his heart, and likewise really in his soul, is still holding on to the idea of those riches, um, then he hasn't truly given them over. Okay, give away your car, give away your house, give away all your clothing, all your fancy possessions, and you're like, yeah, look how good I am, I'm doing all this for Christ. And if in your heart you're begrudging it and you're annoyed and you're bitter because actually you still really want those things, you haven't really given over the world at all because you're still holding the world in your heart. And you could actually um, mirror this, the idea of the commandments where people go, oh, thou shalt not kill. Well, that's well, that's obvious, right? That's obvious. I don't kill. I've never killed. Most people have never killed anyone, right? Well, and then clearly that commandment doesn't mean literally killing someone. It means uh, it means it means the act of, you know, someone cuts you off in traffic and you're really angry and you actually in that moment you probably could have like, you know, I don't know, even even give them a tap on the arm or something like that or shouted at them. You don't literally want to kill them, but in a certain sense you you want to dominate them, you want to be superior, you're angry, you're annoyed, you are breaking that commandment in that in that moment. So once again that external relationship as that window, as that sensory window into the soul is the, what's going on in the soul is truly what your relationship with these things is, okay? Um, so like, likewise, when we think of the soul as being in darkness, um, it isn't in darkness with respect to this prison um, if it still craves the objects, even if it isn't afforded them by the reality of the senses, okay? So we can think about the rich man. In a certain sense, right, it looks like the rich man, in giving up all his material possessions, has closed up that window of the prison. But actually, if he still wants them in his soul, then then he hasn't closed up that window. And even if they aren't actually literally afforded to us in their objective reality, if they're still there in the reality of the soul, then we haven't entered into the night and we still have this relationship with the worldly um, and... The soul isn't really in darkness at that point, okay? So if people still cling to these affections uh, that they are sort of that, that, that they are sort of wearing 
okay? They're not really, at that point, truly incapable of being enlightened by God because God is so pure and simple, St. John of the Cross, okay? They must begin, uh, we must begin, we could say, uh, with this rejection, okay? There can't be a concordance between light and darkness. The darkness could not receive the light, we are told. Darkness, by its very definition, cannot exist with the light. The light pushes out the darkness, okay? You can't have one and, the, one and, one and the other. It doesn't happen. So darkness, in this sense, for St. John of the Cross, is an attachment to what he calls creatures. Now, creatures, um, creatures I understand really as the worldly, the material of the world, you know, the, the prince of the world, if you like. Uh, but he, he calls it creatures, and that's really his symbol. You know, creatures of the earth, um, these low-level, completely horizontal, flattened creatures. Um, that is darkness, and an attachment to that way of living. Okay, that's darkness is an attachment to that worldly and material way of living for St. John of the Cross. And light is God. And thus the divine, uh, the light of divine union cannot be established in the soul until all these affections with creatures, with the below, are eradicated. So, um, St. John, John of the Cross is actually very severe on this, in quite a poetic way to give him his due, but he's very severe on this, okay? If one is attached to a creature for St. For Saint, for, for Saint John of the Cross, if one is attached to a creature, they are equal to that creature. If one is attached to something um, of, of the earth, of the material world, they are equal to that thing. Um, stronger the attachment, the closer they are to the likeness of that creature, of that thing. All creatures of the below are a mere impediment and deprive the soul of transformation uh, in towards God. Just as darkness is nothing other than the, the privation of light. Okay, Until the soul is purged, it will be unable to possess God, neither in the above or the below. Now, when we think back to that idea of being equal, we can actually really think... A, a, I think a, a really great way to begin to think about that in the modern world, because you think Man, this, this metaphor of the creature, I can't really merge with that too well. We can we can really think of idolatry, and uh, there's there's plenty of people who've quoted something along these lines that the idea of you know, um, if you if you if you worship uh, money, you'll forever be poor. If you worship beauty, you will forever be ugly. If you worship fame, you will for, forever be ignored. If you worship popularity, you'll forever be lonely. Right. You become so alike that thing, but because you can never be satisfied in the world below, you you all you do is detach yourself further and further than God and just become equal to that thing that you you um, idolize of the material world. Okay. So Saint John of the Cross is very severe in his writing about the stark difference between the coarseness and crudity of the creatures of the below and the grace and elegance of God's grace uh, in the above. Which is why that those that become obsessed and attached with all the creatures become coarse and crude in God's sight. And then you can really begin to see why the, 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 the symbol of creatures really works. You, when you're of the below and solely of the, of the world and the material, you, you become creaturely. Um, so, back to that idea of the difference between the two, the divine and the world, or the divine and the sensory and the worldly, compared to the infinite goodness of God, the finite goodness of the world can only ever be called wickedness that's a very strange thing to think about but you have to think about the not so much difference in quantity because that doesn't really work and human minds when they begin to think about infinity tend to just break down but you have to think try think about the difference between infinite and finite so in that sense when you say the finite goodness and saint john of the cross does still say there is goodness in the finite world but in relation to infinite 
that can only ever be called wickedness. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't come close. It can't come close. So in relation to this limitation and ignorance of the world and of the blow and of the senses, we understand that all the world's wisdom, all the world's wisdom and human ability is nothing but crudeness compared to the infinite wisdom of God. Therefore, those who wish to reach a union with God, to continue, uh, if they continue to value their own knowledge, are simply entering into ignorance. Um, and ignorance, of course, doesn't grasp this in the same way that dark, darkness can't coexist with light. It's always that same problem. Okay, And it said in, in Corinthians, If anyone among you thinks he is wise, let him become ignorant so as to be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. 1 Corinthians 3, 18, 19. So in much the same uh, way, all sovereignty as well, all sovereignty, all so-called freedom of the world, uh, is nothing compared to the sovereignty and freedom in relation to the spirit of god because you you're not it's not built from ignorance okay so in relation to what we now understand about wisdom and ignorance we can also understand that those that want to be the greatest well of course here and the below in the senses will be the least because freedom can't abide in a heart dominated by these creature-led desires okay freedom is found in liberated heart a child's heart so those that link themselves and attach themselves and become equal to the delights the delights of the below will not be capable of attaining the delights of the above okay, the relationship between the divine and the uh, the divine and the world is always inverse okay the wealth of the below is poverty above and the uh, the wealth of above is i guess is poverty for people and below because of their ignorance um the the lighter the lighter knowledge of below is darkness and ignorance of the above the person who is wealthy below is truly poor above you can begin to play around with that and realize you can, it's a great thing to meditate on to realize the differences of what you know what it is to be rich and poor or what it is to be i don't know known and unknown etc this is all uh, very helpful in understanding the qualitative difference in these things the experiential difference so it's clear that we must be emptied out purged of our appetites of all natural and supernatural things which might be a hindrance on our journey towards the the union with god so if if one wishes for uh, and then this is saint john's words um, which i've paraphrased a little bit because he is sometimes a bit of an awkward writer but he says if one wishes for the taste of human food then the palate of angels will be disagreeable to them and he says we see this in the Israelites in the book of Exodus, um, where God thought it shameful for them to crave other foods, you know, rich earthly foods such as meat, and they're really asking for meat at this point, during the time when he's showering them with manna, the heavenly food. And because of this, the Israelites were unsuccessful in deriving from this heavenly food, manna, uh, all the taste and strength they are looking for because they were still focused on the appetites of the creatures of the below. They still had that attachment. They hadn't purged themselves. Okay. So the human world in relation to God is almost always folly. When a human um, desires two things, and this is this is a really great thought in relation to will and that idea of finitude and inf finite and infinite natures uh, again and we're really looking at will now and then the idea of human will in relation to god's will okay so what for when when a human desires or wills really two things those two objects are equated 
in the sense that they are both being desired by the fact that one desires them both. Okay, so if you desire, if you desire, you know, uh, I don't know, a cool soft drink, and you also desire some refreshing fruit. Okay, they're not literally equal in the way that they'll satisfy you or whatever. They're, but they are equal in the fact that you desire them both. They're they're put onto that same level of somewhat importance because you just think, well, yeah, I wouldn't mind one of one of these things, right? Um, now. If a human desires something of the world, the senses, the below, and also desires God, then they are quite literally, for St. John of the Cross, trying to weigh up desires between something of this world and God himself. And nothing can ever equal God. God, okay, it's finite versus infinite. And thus in desiring something or willing something of the below, while e whilst equally trying or saying that we do desire God, we're offending him because we're if we, okay why do you desire something of the blow how can you ever desire something of the blow which is finite and also still say that you desire god you know what an offense for saint john of the cross and now finally here saint john of the cross takes up the symbol of the mountain okay the mountain that moses climbed and he, he asking asking god of course asked moses to ascend alone and leave the children of israel below um and the desire to climb this mountain is built on three accomplishments First, one must must cast out all other gods and attachments. Second, they must purify themselves of these appetites and all of their residue. And third, in order to reach the top, their garments must be changed. Which is to say, this, when they reach the top, and that third thing, which is to say the soul, when it reaches the top, when, when their garments are changed, will be clothed in a new understanding through removal of the old understanding only once the will is stripped of all its old cravings. And once this newly clothed soul is acquired, one's activities become divine. And this is done in a state of union when the soul in which God alone dwells has no other function uh, other than to praise and adore God. Okay, so you can go back to that idea of two wills. Your soul can't be clothed with the new understanding if you retain your old understanding. You can't retain the world, you can't retain uh, darkness, and also have the light. Now... You know, we've been going on about we've been going on about getting rid of these appetites, and so far, I mean, it's probably self-evident to a lot of people back then, most definitely, um, but might not be to some people now. Saint John of the Cross finally says, "Okay, well, let's look into the reasons actually why these appetites do cause harm." I've been telling you to purge yourself of all these appetites and the worldly things, and here you go, get rid of all this stuff. We need to ask, well, why, well, why are we getting rid of this? Why are we getting rid of this? Ultimately, he begins from the position that two contraries can't coexist, as we've seen. If you want to have God, if you want to have light, you can't have darkness, you can't have the world. Um, you can't have the will. You can't have your will in accordance with things of the world and in accordance with God's will. Okay, you can't have the creature, the creator, and the sensuous. You can't be. You can't be the, your own creator, for instance. Um, and have God, the divine. Okay, so you either have creature or creator. Okay, you either have the sensuous or the spiritual, the finite or the infinite, the visible or the invisible, the temporal or the eternal. Okay, it's it's two contraries can't coexist, and to have that clothing, that new clothing, you have to get rid of the old clothing. So, and a, and a new form uh, can't be introduced without expulsion of the old form, without the purgation. Now, this word, St. John of the Cross, gets really severe, and I really like it, okay? Uh, those who wish to feed their appetites and the creatures and feed the things of the world are like dogs. And the children of God get to eat at the table with their father, 
and the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall to the floor. And if such people refuse to rise from the crumbs to the full spirit, then of course they will constantly be wondering why they are constantly hungry and their appetites are never satisfied and satiated. These dogs, these people who act in such a way, will always be dissatisfied and bitter. And so we see of those people who are obsessed with the things of the world that their will is in accordance with the things of the world and thus will be unsatiable forever. It will never be satiated. Okay? Because it's... It, that whole existence, that whole willing, it exists contrary to the fullness of God, the only thing which is the true natural desire of every human being and the only thing which can satisfy uh, the human soul. Now, there are five appetites, five in St. John of the Cross gets quite specific now, there are five appetites for St. John of the Cross which deal uh, with the impairment of the soul in relation to appetites. Wary, uh, to be wearisome, wary, torment, darken, defiled and weakened five effects um so firstly the first episode the first appetite and the first sort of effect of of five main appetites that he's giving in relation to this idea of how are they actually harming the soul um the wearisome people become wearisome because they're restless okay if you can't be if you can't be pleased you're always looking you're always searching okay next thing next thing next thing next thing next thing we find this we find this in the modern world all the time oh you know i got the new car yeah, I'm bored already, right? Next thing, next thing, next thing, next thing. I've got another next promotion. I'm going to go on another holiday. Da, 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 da. People become wearisome. They're, they're t- their souls are getting burnt out. Um, they're restless. They can't be pleased. They're always whining and looking for something new. Any minor sense of satiation is always short-lived. And they become even more, uh, sh- you know, shorter and shorter and shorter. And you, you find it's almost, it's almost like like spiritual, it's like negative spiritual ADHD, right? It's just the next thing, the next thing. And soon enough everyone these such people who are becoming wearisome in this manner are always looking for something new and in this sense they're tiring they never let their soul rest they are always searching and become wicked in their search for the next thing which will fill their infinite lack an infinite lack which of course can only be filled by the infinite fullness nothing finite can fill an infinite lack as this search grows the soul becomes only more and more hungry because now the things satisfy even less so it becomes more tired the appetite grows because it needs more and nothing just becomes it's like entropic it just nothing even comes close to fulfilling it in short the appetites firstly wary and fatigue someone the first thing that happens with the appetites if you become if you if you're acting in accordance with the world and you're, you're attaching yourself to the world you become wary you become fatigued and then secondly we have torment someone in this state now is being tortured because they're bound to something which will literally give them no relief until they're freed. Okay, so in reclining on the, the so-called benefits of the, of the appetites, the soul actually reclines onto a bed of thorns. The torment will only ever increase. And we see this, okay, they're worrisome, but they, that's the only thing they can ever search for because they've attached to it is the things of the world. So they're just tormenting themselves. And, and the appetite torments in relation to the measure of its intensity. The greater the appetite, the greater the torment. The more appetites, the more torment. To let your appetites take hold of you is literally just to ask for this infinite suffering, but the suffering has no reward. The suffering just doesn't have any reward. It doesn't have an end. Okay, it doesn't, you know, suffering doesn't bring anything about. There's no goodness in that suffering. Thirdly, the appetites blind and darken someone. And this is the one I love. Uh, and it's like, so to, for the appetites to blind and darken someone, it's not, it's not media, it's like bang, you're blind. But it's like, 
it's like an atmosphere of murky air clouds which block out the light in sunshine even to the point where the person's intellect is actually becoming impeded by this fog okay the will becomes weak uh the you know it's all fogged down and gunked up with all this murky stuff the memory becomes dull because when you look back there's all these clouds and slowly the person becomes more and more disordered you're just surrounded by these thick murky clouds of nonsense appetite darkening stuff you just you you know you're not gonna no anchor no aim no purpose you don't know where you are more and more they are just incapable of receiving the light from god and actually knowing where they're going but why is this why does this happen and it's this way because the appetite itself is blind appetites don't have a reason to be led by your appetites is to be led by the blind even if one is to undergo extraordinary penances and exercises, these may not be sufficient enough to attain union with the divine wisdom if you don't strive to deny these appetites, you know, and get and purge out this stupid, murky stuff. And, you know, in the same way that tilling the soil is necessary for the growth of what is to come, the same th- sense of this purgation of this murky stuff so you can actually let the light in and see where you need to go is needed before you can do anything. The ultimate faith, fate, of such people is that they eventually become so blinded by their appetites that even if they are in the midst of truth of what is truly suitable for them and correct for them they wouldn't be able to see it they wouldn't have the will to see it because they're surrounded by this okay the fourth way the appetites uh, harm the soul is by defiling it and staining it um the, the heat of the desire itself stains the soul so The soul, in being the image of God, the perfect, and God being perfect, the perfect and beautiful image of God becomes defiled. Now, I I love this idea of the image of God in the human soul being the perfect image, and I believe it was um, uh, one, not not a saint, um, I believe he might be venerable now, but it's one of the venerable um, used to have an understanding. Cardinal Newman. Cardinal Newman. Cardinal Newman, as I understand it, when a newborn baby had just been baptized, you have a newborn baby, this perfect creature, uh, this perfect human being who's just been baptized. And so in that moment, he had this understanding that you now have the perfect, unstained, undefiled image and beautiful image of God. And so he used to bow to them, which I think is fantastic. And so we can think about that in ourselves as this thing which is uh, becoming defiled by these appetites okay so once again we look back to the fact that contraries can't exist and so darkness coming into contact with light can only do something such as stain it you have this light you can't have the contrary so what does it do it just leaves like a smear on it and for saint john of the cross nothing is comparable to how ugly and dirty the imprint of the appetite is onto our soul it's the filthiest thing imaginable in this life he says the final or fifth kind of harm is weakness uh, or pity. Um, the appetites basically begin to sap the strength needed for the person in question's perseverance towards God because the force of the will and des- desire is um, divided. Um, the, the appetite becomes weaker uh, than if it was completely fixed on God. Okay, so in having appetites, you know, you might say, like, like we saw before, um, you might you might will these two things, and even even if you are willing God, you might still be willing the other thing, but actually you can clearly see that your will would become weaker because your will's not solely focused. If you have multiple appetites, well, then it's split all over the place. It's extremely divided, and of course it becomes uh, weaker. The more there is a divisional schism, the weaker it all becomes, okay? The weaker uh, your perseverance becomes. Um, 
And the appetites, in a sense, become like an offspring of vipers. They just eat away at everything, dividing themselves and killing relationship with the soul with God. Um, so that's the five main effects of the appetites. Okay, so one might one might ask: um, Is the total uh, mortification of all appetites required to attain this state of perfection? Now, Saint John of the Cross actually responds here finally a little bit more moderately. He says, "Yes, it, you know, it's true. Not all the appetites are equal in their detriment, and not all are equally a hindrance to the soul." Okay, because he's he's speaking of voluntary appetites because. He says the nat- our natural appetites. I mean, our natural appetites are natural appetites. Okay, these are they're of little or no hindrance to the union, provided one doesn't give them their consent. Right? You can pretty uh, a certain state. You can these things become background noise, which can be pushed away quite easily. One can't eradicate the natural appetites entirely in this life, but someone can, however, experience them in a sensitive manner or in a sensitive nature. Um, you know, putting them in their correct place. They'll be quieted and the superior part of the soul will pay no attention to them. But a person must truly be liberated of all voluntary appetites, however slight they may be. For this is the place where the person's will is actually being transformed. So if you're willing, if you're voluntary entering into a relationship with the worldly or the spiritual, the material, or these appetites, then that's where you're volunteering, that's where your will's involved, and that's the will that needs to become in accordance with God's will, okay? And this is the place where that must happen, okay? So that's where they're really important. And St. John is actually very fair about that as well, you know, not to get too caught up in those ideas because, you know, focus on the voluntary things first. So in the sense that God's will is perfect, one can't consent to that which is imperfect in relation to their own will, okay? Um, so St. John, of course, gives these examples of small habitual imperfections being being very talkative, small attachments to, you know, clothing, books, the way your food is preferred, trifling conversations, little satisfactions in tasting and knowing, so on, right? If attachment is found here, they can be harmful in progress of virtual. These are voluntary attachments. And with regard to these attachments, he says it makes little difference whether a bird is tied by a thread or a cord or a rope, okay? They're bound the same way. So it's still to do with where is your will taking you? Where are you allowing your will to take you? And how divided is it? And where is your focus? But we have to have hope and we have to persevere because... And this is where St. John of the Cross, I did say, is severe. Not to go forward on the road is ultimately to turn back. Not to gain ground is to lose. Once we are on this path, we need to keep going forward. Much in the same sense as St. John says, if there's one small crack in a picture, in a picture uh, which goes unprepared, unrepaired, the damage will slowly cause the, the liquid to leak out. So we must, we've got to be on top. We've got to be on top of this, you know. Um, you know, penance, exercises, confession, all this stuff would be appropriate for St. John of the Cross. But these are, once again, these are for friars and nuns. But you have to be on top of it and you have to be moving forward. Okay. Um, and in moving forward on this road, we, we, we have to get, we have to continue to get rid of all these appetites and things we want rather than indulging in them. If we don't get rid of them completely, we won't reach our goal. The soul simply won't be transformed uh, into that, that union with God. Uh, if it only has but one imperfection, says St. John of the Cross, he's, you know, he's severe. Um, now, St. John of the Cross then takes up to the up to the question, and this is a very specifically Catholic question, which quite, you know, it, it's it's clear why it's here. With and, but, but of course, many people are reading this book now, which is why I state that. But he, he says, 
what he's asking the question now he said well what appetites could remove or cause the loss of grace okay and he says it's only voluntary appetites once again things we will and anyone who knows about uh, mortal sin will know that already things that we we voluntarily do and we knowingly do with our will that involve a matter of mortal sin can cause the loss of grace completely the appetites of mortal sin uh basically the appetite uh, the appetites which produce mortal sin and mortal sin itself produce total blindness, torment, filth, weakness, okay? Um, but in talking about venial sin, you still have these wearisome things, but they don't harm you to such an absolute degree. They don't pry the soul of grace. Um, they, their defilement only corresponds to a weakness that they brought on, okay? Um, so there's a question many people might be asking, which is, what is the manner and method of entering this dark night then? This night of the senses. And there are two ways, he says. Active and passive. The active ways are ones that people can do themselves. And the passive ways, which is where a lot of talk about and writing on John of the Cross's work has been written. Passive ways are the one in which one does nothing. God accomplishes the work in the soul and just the soul is just a recipient. But this is much later. Um... But he gives some very brief counsels now as to how we can conquer or begin this process of conquering the appetites. Once again, this is written for friars and nuns. Um, as, and the friars and nuns in the 16th century as well. Um, so he gives a few counsels and he says that these are a few, um, but they are extremely profitable. So first he says, we must have the habitual desire to imitate Christ in all our deeds, bring ourselves into conformity with his life. We must study his life in order to know how to imitate him. Secondly, we must renounce any empty sensory satisfaction and appetite which is not for the honour and glory of God. And this must be done out of love for Jesus Christ. And then he states, and this is sort of his counsels, to be, to be endeavour to be inclined always, not to the easiest, but to the most difficult, not to the most delightful, but to the most distasteful, not to the most gratifying, but to the less pleasant, not to what means rest for you, but to hard work. Not to the consoling, but to the unconsoling. Not to the most, but to the least. Not to the highest and most precious, but to the lowest, most despised. Not to wanting something, but to wanting nothing. Look for the worst of temporal things and look for Christ everywhere. Desire to enter into complete nakedness, emptiness and poverty in everything in the world. If these counsels are truly carried out for St. John of the Cross, they are sufficient for entry into the night of the senses. Okay? And in doing so, we must act with contempt for ourselves and desire that others act contemptuously towards us. We should speak of ourselves in contempt and desire others to do also. And we should also think lowly of ourselves and also desire that others do. And then he states, To reach satisfaction in all, desire its possession in nothing. To come to the knowledge of all, desire the knowledge of nothing. To come to possess all, desire the possession of nothing. To arrive at being all, desire to be nothing to come to the pleasure you have not you must go by a way in which you enjoy not to come to the knowledge you have not you must go by a way in which you have not to come to the possession you have not you must go by a way in which you possess not to come to be what you are not you must go by a way in which you are not when you delay in something you cease to rush towards the all for to go from the all to the all you must deny yourself of all in all and when you come to the possession of the all you must possess it without wanting anything because if you desire to have something in all your treasure in god is not purely your all and at the end of the book one we come <laughs> to 
the second line. We probably already even probably mostly forgot about the fact we were discussing the stanza. You remember One Dark Night? We actually now, right now, after all these cancels, we come to the second line. Fired with the loves, uh, love's longings, okay? Passing through the night of the sense to the union with the beloved, we are fired with this love, a love of pleasure, firings towards enjoyment, a more intense uh, and, and kindled spirit towards another. And the spiritual part of the soul needs to be fired with another, with a more urgent longing for spiritual things outside of that material thing so you you have the purgation and you also have this firing of the love towards the greater spiritual things and then very briefly at the end very very briefly st john gives a very quick exposition of the three remaining lines of the stanza ah sheer grace i went out and seen my house now now uh, my house being now stilled to be released from a prison via the sheer grace we need grace as we know escape from the prison and we're unnoticed because we're not apprehended now by the passions, by the world, by the material, by the appetites. And we achieve this liberation. Um, and we, 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 this allows us to know that we've conquered the desires. We've lulled them to sleep. Everything's still. And we head forward to enjoyment and union with Christ, with God. So I hope that all made sense for everyone. Um, and I hope you enjoyed it. Um, so the next parts will be on book two and uh, I think there'll be about two parts on book two and then probably about two parts again on book three um, I'm hoping to do these have these out most Sundays so if you enjoyed this um, there's plenty more on the channel if you're new to the channel if you've enjoyed this look around I cover a lot of things but thank you all very much for uh, listening and I'll see you all in the next talk thank you <laughs>